Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Katie Orr. Today on The Breakdown, a July 4th edition of the show, a conversation with one of the 2020 candidates for president of the United States, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. That's right. Marisa Lagos and I talked with him about the importance of racial identity, his decision to live in a public housing development in Newark, and why he talks so much about love on the campaign trail. Now, Scott, you are back this week after spending some time in New York City. What did you get up to? Well, I was there for a water polo tournament, Katie. And pictures on my Twitter account, by the way, <laughs> my water polo team. Uh, we did pretty well. Got a silver medal. So we came in second out of 15 teams. And it was also World Pride uh, event uh, for the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. So there was a whole lot going on in New York City. I got to go to the Stonewall Tavern just for old time's sake. <laughs> and uh, it was fun. It was a great time to be in New York City. Your trips always look like so much fun. Yeah, you know, <laughs> well, that's what Facebook and Twitter are for, I guess, when you're on vacation. <laughs> but speaking of sort of July 4th, which is what today is, um, a lot of people think about fireworks on July 4th. But, uh, you know, if you're Cal Fire, you worry about wildfires on July 4th. And uh, Katie, some some uh, real progress up in Sacramento this week and uh, probably next week as well on wildfire legislation. What's going on up there? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Sacramento lawmakers are beginning to debate a new bill that would overhaul how the state deals with utility companies whose equipment actually start wildfires, and then also how customers can be reimbursed for property damaged in those fires. They're taking up uh, AB 1054, which is a $21 billion uh, insurance fund, which would be paid by ratepayers. Uh, they would have a $250 a month charge, which they currently have, but it's going to be extended for the next 15 years. Uh, also, shareholders would kick into that, too. Yeah, so there's no rate increase, but they will continue paying that uh, $2.50. Probably won't really notice that on their utility bill. And they're creating a California Catastrophe Council. I wonder who came up with that name. <laughs> Sounds like something out of a movie. <laughs> Sounds like something Fox News would come up with, but... Yeah, exactly. Uh, Newsom and, and Democratic lawmakers are hoping they avoid a catastrophe on this vote. Uh, they made this an urgency measure, which means if it passes, it would take effect right away. But that also means they need two thirds vote of the legislature to get it through, which even though Democrats hold a supermajority in the how in the uh, assembly and Senate, those votes are st always tough. Uh, but we should note that Chad Mays is co-sponsoring that and he's a Republican. So, you know, they, they they must feel confident that they have the votes to go forward. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Newsom did a bit of a victory lap, or is continuing to do a victory lap, I guess you could say, on the budget. Um, he held a press conference to tout, what was it, uh, the affordability budget or something like that? 
Yeah, the affordability budget, really talking about all the social programs that they're funding uh, in this budget and also talking about the surpluses they had. He had a rally at a community college here in Sacramento earlier this week. And at that rally, you know, he's already made it clear that he's not running for president, but he still sounds like a guy who is just who wants to and is just itching for a fight with President Donald Trump. And uh, thank you for being part of this magical place, California, the most diverse state in the world's most diverse democracy. And to Donald Trump, eat your heart out. We're running record surpluses. You're running record deficits. That's a California value that also speaks to this remarkable state. Thank you all very, very much. And Katie, I guess he could have thanked Jerry Brown for those massive surpluses uh, that he inherited. Uh, but nonetheless, I guess if you're governor, you are the beneficiary of it. And, and speaking of beneficiaries, uh, Kamala Harris uh, still getting a bounce from last week's debate performance, uh, which uh, has been called commanding. Uh, and uh, among other things, she's raised a lot of money off of that. Uh, she's got a bounce now in the polls. Uh, a new Iowa poll out this week shows her uh, in second place behind Joe Biden. And a lot of the attention she's gotten has been on this uh, topic of race and busing. Let's hear just a little clip of what she had to say that got so much attention. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools, and she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. And, of course, uh, that phrase made uh, the story of busing and the policies that she was criticizing Joe Biden over very, very personal, Katie. But, you know, I think uh, obviously the national audience still getting to know Kamala Harris. Uh, those of us here in California might remember that she got a lot of criticism herself from the Black Caucus in Sacramento uh, when she was not as responsive as many thought she could have been as attorney general when there were police shootings of unarmed black men and uh, Latino men as well. Uh, so, you know, no doubt a very, very good, perhaps the best week Kamala Harris has had. But, you know, we're I'd say we're in the third or fourth inning here, maybe. Absolutely. And, you know, she's already facing some pushback for her criticisms of Joe Biden. Although I have to say, you know, what it, if she wants to make a name for herself in this crowded field, she's got to come out swinging. He's the perceived front runner. So, you know, it, I think a very strategic decision on her part to kind of take him down a notch or two and for the moment, it appears to have worked. But like you said, we still have a long way to go. All right. Well, let's take a short break. When we come back, the conversation Marisa Lagos and I had recently with New Jersey Senator and 2020 presidential candidate Cory Booker at the California Democratic Convention. That was before last week's debate, we should say. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know 
that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members. It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos, and we're thrilled to be joined by the junior senator from New Jersey, Senator Cory Booker. Welcome to Political Breakdown. It's really great to be on. Thank you for having me. So we're here at the Democratic Convention. You just uh, really rallied and roused up the the group. Um, Why do you want to be president? Well, I'm really frustrated that we seem to be a nation where uh, many people are beginning to think that the forces tearing us apart are stronger than those forces holding us together. And this tribalistic politics, us versus them, uh, fear-based politics, zero-sum game, this is not who we are. We're a nation where the ideals of the beloved community are what got us this far. And so my commitment is to running for president, not just because of my policy ideas and the things I think can help us on the march towards justice for all, but also because I think our country needs a revival of civic grace. It needs healing. It needs us to be called back together uh, as a nation. And, 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 and we may not have everybody, but we're too divided right now to succeed. And we need, we need stronger coalitions and stronger commitment to justice. You talked about you know, the idea that Democrats need to not just be about beating somebody or about what they don't like, but about what they do like. I mean, do you feel like you're hearing that from everybody? And, and what are you trying to do to push that forward? Look, I know there's a lot of folks who even say in polls their number one issue is beating Donald Trump. And I get that. Um, I, I see the, the hurt that he causes the, from his policies to just his rhetoric, the, the moral vandalism on the fabric of our, of our community. But still, that is too small of an ambition. And the challenges going on in my community uh, from, from uh, wage stagnation to... Uh, uh, underfunded public schools, all of these things have been going on since before Donald Trump. And so we need to have bigger ambitions than just beating him. And we also need to understand that we can't beat his darkness with our darkness. We need to bring the light and his hate with our hate. We need to bring the love. I, I remember going into a town hall in, in, in Iowa and some big guy sees me. I'm a you know, former tight end at Stanford University, former We're gonna get to that American in a football player. But he sees this big, <laughs> I thought he was thinking he's going to have a testosterone moment. He puts his arm around me and says, hey, man, uh, you need to punch Donald Trump in the face. And I stop in my tracks and I look at him and I go, dude, that's a felony. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and I'm sorry. We're, he wants us to fight him on his turf and his terms. And, I, and I'm saying enough of that. That's not how we've beaten bullies and demagogues before in our, in our democracy. We beat them by calling to the conscience of this country, the moral imagination of an you grew up in a fairly well-off white suburb in New Jersey, and I think your dad once described your family as four raisins in a, a tub of vanilla ice cream. Yes, what yes. was it like growing up there? Um, you know, it, it definitely was this nurturing soil. I mean, I am who I am because I had a community that loved me. I mean, uh, people who worked full-time jobs, coming to coach me after school, teachers, public school teachers who were saw that I was afraid of speaking in front of crowds, so they put me on a stage in theater. Uh, friends who I ate more meals at their house than ours. But, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. There was a lot of in, in, implicit racial bias back then that I felt as well and had incidences growing up that were hurtful to a young psyche developing in this world. Like what? Yeah. 
I mean, look, you, you realize when you start driving that your parents, with fear in their eyes, uh, t start having these tough conversations and you see yourself getting pulled over more than your friends. You're the one that's followed in a mall when you go in. Uh, you're the one that gets stopped and questioned by security guards. Um, you have, you know, moments where I've had uh, just seen the utter racism of uh, some folks, you know, an incident with a friend's parents that I'll never forget. So the, 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 my life wasn't bereft of those things, but I had parents that grounded me with stories about the bigotry and hate that they experienced, but also about how love overcame those things, literally to move into my neighborhood. It was a white couple that posed as my parents to buy the home, and on the day of the closing was a volunteer white lawyer who, who confronted the real estate agent's bigotry and, and discrimination, and, and literally took a punch from my family because the real estate agent didn't give up. He punched my dad's lawyer in the face, said the dog on my father. So this is the power of what my parents taught me is that our, the gardens of our democracy have never been free of hatred and bigotry and demagoguery. Uh, it, but what the power of our democracy has been, there's always been people willing to, to weed out uh, that and, 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 and constantly push uh, to, to cultivate uh, the fruits of our society, which are manifest when we come together across the lines that divide us and affirm the ties that bind us. So in many ways, I didn't grow up not seeing racism and, and bias, but I grew up understanding that the cure to that wasn't to let that, that cause me to, to, to lash out or to burn up, but to let it fuel me to be an agent of love amidst the persistent hate. It sounds like your parents were pretty upfront about those things. And I mean, I think in a situation like that, like, you know, you're probably sort of forced into being political, whether you want to be or not. But I, I just wonder if politics was something beyond the sort of racial politics questions that was a big deal at your house. Was it a kitchen table conversation? Were they surprised when you went on this route? Um, look, my parents were more activists in politics than in politics. Politics was always a mean to an, means to an end of justice, but the things that were emphasized in my house were more the organizations like the Fair Housing Council my mom led, the homeless organization that my mom would eventually lead. This, I was enamored by great activists. There was my hero coming out of law school, who I wanted to be when I grew up, quote, so to speak, was a guy named Jeffrey Canada, who read, led something in Harlem called the Harlem's Children's Zone. And so politics to me was, I always say the best way to make God laugh is to make plans for yourself. And I added cynicism about politics um, when I was younger. And the next thing you know, the tenant leaders and organizers are pushing me to run uh, for city council, something I really resisted until I got some very tough talk from these elder tenant leaders in my community. All right, let's go back and Let's go back a little bit. Yeah, now I know your mom went to USC. You went to Stanford. Yes. So how did you get on this side of the continent? Well, my mom went to Fisk University, HBCU in, in, in Tennessee, and then she did her grad work uh, in, at USC. She's from, you know, manual arts high school. I have an L.A. family, and, and so I always joke that I know more about Knott's Berry Farm and Magic Mountain oh my gosh, than anybody not else around, in the even? 80s and the 90s. I don't know. I can, I can give I you a I could probably too. still draw the Nosbury Farm <laughs> amusement rides back then. Um, so I, I grew up with grandparents who raised their grandchildren, even though I was 3,000 miles away. They loaded us up in a mobile home that was this puke green color that they called the Green Dream. And we drove across this country, breaking down often. <laughs> and I, I could tell you about Howard how, uh, uh, Holiday Inns and the best pools. And But they that's how culture is transferred. And 
you know, that, that African-American experience, that American experience so shaped me. Listening to parent, grandparents that grew up in the Depression, who knew what it meant to get a union job on an assembly line in Detroit, um, who saw the power of uh, uh, civil rights activism. And, and that sort of, that, those were my dreams, uh, to be an activist. Because I had parents that told me that this country was not finished yet. We still had a lot of injustice. And the only way I could pay back the blessings that I inherited from struggle was to to pay it forward and be a part of the struggle. So you played football at Stanford. I did. Um, I talk got into Stanford because of a 4.0, 1,600, 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 <laughs> receiving yards. <laughs> what was it like being there? And I mean, was that, I, I assume when you're playing football, that's a, a large part of your focus, basically, when you're on campus. It's maybe not, I don't know, marching yeah, in the streets. Campus. Well, look, I still look back at college and I don't understand how I slept because, look, I was president of my class, one of the co-presidents of my class. I ran, on first time I had a chance to run a nonprofit uh, was a tr- crisis counseling center, which was one of my more formative experiences of my life, Um, especially sitting on a phone and taking everything from suicide calls, depression calls, people, the challenges coming out, body image. I mean, it it revealed the veil that we as Americans are all all struggling and need each other and need a more courageous empathy for each other. Wait, so you're doing that and you're playing football? Yeah, I literally, it it was a lot of years with little sleep and trying to be a activist working in East Palo Alto, in the East Palo Alto area, uh, I fell in love with what I thought was going to be my career, working with kids in inner city communities. Um, How did your fellow football players feel about that? Did they care? Look, I think there was some tension with me and the coaches. Uh, what, like over what? Over the fact that I was not 100% one-dimensional and would come to practice sleep debt and, you know, I think that by the time I reach my senior year, most people don't know the, the full story. I have a year of eligibility left, which I offer up to any California college. Um, <laughs> um, but but um, my last year, everybody thought I was coming back. I had a pretty good senior season, but I had a fifth year of eligibility. And at the end, Denny Green, then the coach, basically said, I, I'm, I don't want you to come back. Uh, you know, this is football's not a priority for you, is basically uh, what he was saying. And was I re- that hard to hear? It was the first time I really felt like I confronted failure. I, I, it was, at that point, I was 21, 22 years old. It was the toughest life blow. I was like, what are you talking about? This is my identity. This is who I am, and I'm good. Um, but it, it turns out that that old idea that when uh, God shuts a, a, a door, he blows open a whole new portal to another existence because I would not be, I wouldn't have gone on to be a Rhodes Scholar, which at that point, seemed insane to be outside of the United States of America for two years as a guy who had never gone out of our country except for maybe a Caribbean island. Um, it ended up being one of the best experiences of my life. What do you feel you learned playing football uh, and being at Stanford, but really the football that oh. you use now in public life? Besides the not sleeping. Well, the grit of the gridiron. I mean, I, I learned my lessons of, you know, hard work and sacrifice does pay off that you're playing a team sport in football and that one of the best things you can do is to be a team leader in the sense of not a position or a title but leading with example taking care of your brother uh, uh, it's in that same trench with you um, that deferred gratification that um, sacrifice for your fellow in this case fellow man um, all of these things shaped my life so much I mean I rely on football lessons a lot. And in fact, I tell a metaphor a lot in this campaign, which is I used to know in high school when we were going to score a touchdown, when I started hearing the defense 
arguing amongst themselves and yelling at each other or blaming each other. I knew we were going to fly through that defense because I'm sorry, if you're divided, you cannot stand. And it's what I worry about in America today is that the way we talk to each other or talk about each other, it, 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 we are a nation that wa is watching China build 18,000 miles of high-speed rail, and we can't even get it together in this country to build rail along our west coast. Oh, we know. we know. Yeah, we know. Yeah, right? yeah. So, okay, so you go to um, Oxford, do the roads thing, yes. you know, yes. and then you went to Yale for law school, is that right? Yeah, two, two amazing years. I don't want to shortchange it. I did everything from travel the planet Earth to study Hinduism and, and, and Torah, and it was really two of the more broadening years of my life and then I came back to Yale Law School and as my dad was starting to tease me back then he goes boy you got more degrees in the month of July but you ain't hot uh, <laughs> um, you know you know you, life is not about the degrees you get it's about the service you give so did you ever think about becoming like a minister or anything I did a lot actually that's so funny because that was really what my internal debate was whether to go to uh, uh, to study theology or to study or to be a lawyer and the devil won out and I went to law school <laughs> so you eventually moved back or moved to New York and into to Newark uh, to Newark yes I yeah. said New York no, no, Newark, no, Newark. Yes. You can see New York, yes. right? Yes, yeah, well, they, New York can see us. Ah, <laughs> there we go. So you end up moving into this pretty notorious public housing project yeah. or around that. And I just wonder to begin with, like, why? Like, what was what was the thinking there? What, what were you... Look, I, I think that we... For me, my moral compass and my faith tradition... You want to find me, I want to live in the places that people say don't live. I want to be in, in solidarity with communities that are too often looked down upon or overlooked or dis, disrespected, disregarded, and, and and that's who I wanted to live with. And it was one of the best decisions I've made in my life. It's why I still 20 You still live years. in that neighborhood, yeah, right? Yeah, I still do. And the, the, I always say I got my BA from Stanford, but got my PhD from the streets of the city in Newark because the greatest heroes I've ever met are, were my neighbors, were the tenant leaders, were the block leaders. I mean, I, I have learned lessons of hope and, and, and lessons of grit and grace and love that uh, I, I, I get very emotional, in fact, about the, the way that Newark had, had a way of breaking me down and then rebuilding me. I wonder, like, I mean, you've been single, you have a girlfriend now, but if you hadn't been a single person and you raised a family, do you think you would have stayed there? Because I know you saw some really heartbreaking things with the kids around that neighborhood as well. Yeah, look, I, I hope that right now, you know, I hope Rosario is the one and and it, we're building a great relationship. And But she knows my values, which are I don't want to separate myself from the cause of my, what I think is the cause of my country. I, staying rooted in Newark informs me every single day of the urgencies of the injustices. And look, dating in, in the projects was hard. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I cannot tell you that a good litmus test if a woman would come back to me, come back with me to, to my, I mean, I have just funny stories, being on a date literally and having somebody break and enter while you're sitting there at the couch and, and seeing the reaction on the woman's face as somebody kicks open my door. Talk to, about a buzzkill. Yeah, to charge at me. It was the, <laughs> And you're an elected official. Like, what a weird dichotomy, right? Because I, I would think it would be weird dating as a public figure but then you've got like, and you're coming back to the project. <laughs> well, well, well that, at, at that time, actually, I had just lost a mayor's election. And so, I, I, you know, look, my pathway through politics, I took on a, 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 a massive machine that had the backing of the state Democratic Party. The retail politics and organizing I know is coming up the most difficult way. And 
Um, so there were many years in the wilderness in Newark where I didn't have security and I didn't have protections and I was living with the community where we had unfortunately regular shootings and neighbors of mine died and you wake up in the morning and you walk through your, the elevators don't work and you're on the 16th floor and you walk through the hallways that are dark or staircases that are dark and have to check pulses of people lying on, in, in, who sought refuge, homeless folks in your, I mean this is, these are events that make you understand how much we are falling short of that beloved community because it makes no sense the way we do things in America and it's cruel and I had a community that, that schooled me in a, in a way that has deepened my capacity for self-reflection, for humility, for reverence in the face of God's creations, and for love. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos, and our guest today is Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. He's running for president, as you may have heard. Um, I want to ask you about your diet. Yes. yes. <laughs> you're vegan. I am a proud vegan, yes. How did that happen? And well, what do you eat at the Iowa Fair? Well, uh, well, <laughs> so, uh, how did it happen? Uh, so in, in 1992, I became a vegetarian, and I was a very competitive athlete at the time, very in tune with my body, and I wanted the diet that best worked for me. And when I gave up uh, meat and, and uh, animal products, uh, my body felt like I just soared. The energy level, the lack of sleep, that, the less sleep that I needed, the better recovery after workouts. This is why you see everybody from the quarterback uh, for the New England Patriots to... Don't uh, name them. I do not name them as a, as a Giants <laughs> fan. Uh, from the quarterback from that, uh, that team in New England to all the way to, um, to, to ultra marathoners. I mean, for my body, this was the right diet. And I knew even then that I should go all the way vegan. But you're from Jersey. It's very hard to give up New Jersey pizza. <laughs> um, but after over a while, I started... Corn eating, milk crust. Um, over a while, I ate less and less. And now I have a... I always say my diet is best in line with what I believe for myself. Do do voters care, do you think? I don't think voters give a damn about what's on my plate. They more care about what my policy agendas are, what's in my heart, what... what you know, Americans, we all have different diets. Some people are gluten-free, flexitarians. I mean, you go around now and... Everybody's got a thing. Everybody's got right. a thing. But, but I think that for me, I just want to live... In, in best in accordance with what makes me a better and more effective public servant. And this is, this is for me, it works. So I want to ask you about race, because obviously we have a more diverse field of candidates than probably ever before. Um, but, you know, I think that it is an issue. Like, there's all these memes. I'm sure you've seen you and Kama, like, dance off, like, who's blacker, <laughs> things like that. How do you want to frame race as a candidate? And, how, like, and are there ways that you don't want to talk about it or really do want to dig into it? I have no choice uh, to, to I, I talk about race, forget as a candidate. I mean, when I became a senator, I was shocked at the one of the most least diverse places I'd ever been was the United States Senate and and started fighting right away because you can't have a judiciary committee. What I was, I was loath to find a black staffer on the judiciary committee that's making decisions that disproportionately impact black communities. And so I went right away. Uh, this isn't about politics for me. It's about fighting to have a more inclusive, more equitable America. And so thank God I praise Chuck Schumer because when Schatz and I went to him and said, every Democratic senator should have to publish their diversity statistics on their staffs. It was a wonderful step that we did. And guess what? More women and more minorities are being hired in the United States Senate. So this to me is fundamental part of my purpose, which is to fight for equity, inclusion, and to deal with the 
awful, god-awful racial disparities in our country that are in everywhere from our healthcare system, where black women have four times the maternal mortality rates of white women, to our criminal justice system, where we have no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs or dealing drugs, but they're incarcerated almost four times the rate, to the point now where we have more blacks under criminal supervision in America than all the slaves in 1850. So for me, this is just who I am. It's my purpose in life. And I'm sorry, I don't know what my job will be next year, but my life is about purpose more than position and dealing with racial inequities, racial bias, the persistence and the persistent legacy of, of overtly racist policies. That's part of my purpose because America will be better. White America will be better. All of us will be better if we address uh, 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 racism and bigotry in our country. And you're friends with the only other African-American male senator, right, that, who's a Republican. Oh, he's a dear, dear friend. He's a dear friend. I can write a dissertation on our disagreements, but I love the guy, and we've partnered on some really powerful legislation. I mean, I've gotten I'm proud of my bipartisan bills that I've gotten done, and with him, something that's helping California create thousands of jobs, bring in millions, if not billions of dollars worth of investment is a bill we did together called Opportunity Zones, which says for the lowest income areas, if a governor designates it as an Opportunity Zone, it will it has incentives to better attract investment capital. And I'm really proud of what I've accomplished across the aisle, including criminal justice reform, which he was a part of as well, which I led on the Democratic side with Dick Durbin. Does he have a hard time being a Republican? Um, I think that he's often attacked in ways that I think are unfortunate, that ways that are I think that are are not reflective of, I mean, cr constructive critiques are great, and I, I critique and fight and roll up my sleeves and wrestle with him on issues that matter, but I do not like when people attack his dignity or attack his, his, his racial authenticity. Is, is black, being black so homogeneous that we can't have people of differing political views? Is being, does it do be authentic? I mean, Arthur Ashe was attacked for not, not being black enough because he played tennis. I mean, this idea of a black essentialism is something that I resist and will fight against. And I'm glad that I found a partner across the aisle. I mean, he helped us stop some judges that Donald Trump put up, which, which were, in my opinion, patently uh, uh, racist in the, in, the, in the laws that they had pushed uh, before they were judges. So. I'm, I'm proud of my friend Tim Scott in terms of our ability to work together across our divides and our differences. And I will, I will challenge people who want to say that, that, that he's not black because of his being in a different part Senator, of the party. Senator Cory Booker, thank you so much for I'm joining. I'm grateful. I could, Thanks guys, for coming. This, my staff is over here. These guys are great. Just like, he's got to go. He's got to go. <laughs> blame you know, Adisu. This we can is blame Adisu. You're running for the highest <laughs> office in the land, and suddenly people tell you what to do more than before. Oh, yeah. You thought not, you were in charge. I thought I was in charge. This is not my time. <laughs> And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer today is Ryan Levy. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinnie Tong. I'm Katie Orr. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at one Katie Orr. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. Happy Independence Day, everybody. We'll see you next time. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.